All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, podcast number 20. Send the Marines, Major Levi Twiggs, Brigadier General Jacob Zylan, and Sergeant Richard Binder. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next hour or so to learn about some interesting folks interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery who have amazing stories. The United States Marine Corps was born in Philadelphia on November 10th, 1775, and the city is the burial site for many famed members of the Corps. Major Levi Twiggs was born in Georgia in a military family. He joined the Marines when he was 19 and made the Marine barracks at Philadelphia Naval Yards his home for many years before heading off to fight in the Mexican-American War. Brigadier General Jacob Zylan was born in Philadelphia and spent 45 years as a Marine Corps officer, culminating in being their first general-level officer. And Sergeant Richard Binder was a German immigrant who joined the Marines at the beginning of the Civil War and was awarded the Medal of Honor for bravery at the Battle of Fort Fisher. He returned to Philadelphia after the war and opened a series of very successful barber shops and hair parlors. You can hear about all three of these men and learn some military history. I'm Joe Lex, and this is All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Send the Marines. The United States Marine Corps was born twice in Philadelphia. The first time was on 10 November 1775, when the Second Continental Congress assembled at the Pennsylvania State House between 5th and 6th on Chestnut Street. It's now known as Independence Hall. They adopted a resolution for the creation of two Marine battalions. This was more than seven months before the Congress declared independence from Great Britain. The second time was a few blocks away at the Tun Tavern, where the tavern's manager, Robert Mullen, was authorized by the Congress to hold a recruitment drive for the Marines. Each year, on November 10th, U.S. Marines worldwide toast the memory of this colonial inn as the official acknowledged birthplace of their service branch. The Tun Tavern, which burnt to the ground in 1781, had been erected in 1686 at the intersection of King, later called Water Street, and Tun Alley, which ran between Chestnut and Walnut Streets, east of Front. Tun, spelled T-U-N, was an old English name meaning a keg of beer roughly 300 gallons. A ton has eight times the volume of a barrel of beer, 
twice the volume of a butt or buttload of beer and four times that of a hogshead. The tavern is also recognized as the birthplace of Masonic teachings in America in 1732 and the founding place of both the Sons of the Society of St. George and St. Andrew's Society. Where is this tavern today? It is under Interstate 95, near Penn's Landing. There's a commemorative marker on the east side of Front Street, across from Sansom Walk. The Marines are a month younger than the United States Navy, which had been established on 13 October 1775 as the Continental Navy. The Second Continental Congress authorized the purchase of two vessels to be armed for a cruise against British merchant ships. The purpose of the Marine Corps was to conduct ship-to-ship fighting, provide shipboard security and discipline enforcement, and assist in landing forces. Both the Continental Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps were disbanded at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783, and the final ship sold off by 1785. But nine years later, under President George Washington, threats to American merchant shipping by Barbary pirates led to the Naval Act of 1794 and a permanently standing U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps. Levi Twiggs was born in May 1793 in Richmond County, Georgia. His father, John Twiggs, born in Maryland in 1750, had served as a military leader in Georgia during the Revolutionary War. Starting as a lieutenant of the militia, he was promoted to captain in 1774. He was wounded in the Battle of Camden in 1780, but recovered, and was promoted to colonel and then brigadier general in 1781, when he was 31 years old. General Twiggs spent 1782 helping drive the British out of Georgia and quelling their Creek Indian allies. He was given the title Savior of Georgia for his efforts. In 1790, his son, David Emanuel Twiggs, was born, and three years later, Levi was born when John was 43 years old. John Twiggs was promoted to Major General in 1791 and remained active in the military through at least 1810 when he was involved in the suppression of a suspected rebellion by enslaved people. When he died at his 1,500-acre Good Hope tobacco plantation in 1816, he left his wife Ruth, seven enslaved people, in his will. Levi Twiggs was 19 when the War of 1812 broke out. His older brother David was already a captain in the 12th Infantry, and Levi was eager to jump into the fray. But his father made him stay at Athens College, which he had actually helped found several years earlier. A year later, his father relented, and Levi joined the U.S. Marines as a second lieutenant on the 38th anniversary of their founding, 10 November 1813. Twiggs' first battle duty was aboard the frigate USS President, which put to sea on 14 January 1814 under the command of Captain Stephen Decatur, Jr., U.S. Navy. The very next day, the President was attacked by a squadron of British warships led by HMS Endymion. The six-hour battle proved too much for Decatur, who struck his colors. In battle summaries, Decatur had nothing but praise for his young Marine Lieutenant Twiggs, who was taken as prisoner to Bermuda after one day in battle. 
That is where he spent the rest of the war. Once he was restored to duty with the rank of first lieutenant, Twiggs spent the next several years performing routine service at the Marine barracks in the Navy Yards of New York, Philadelphia, and Washington. This monotony was interrupted in the mid-1820s when he spent a two-year cruise in the West Indies aboard the frigate USS Constellation. In 1822, Levi married 20-year-old Priscilla Decatur McKnight. Priscilla's father, Captain James McKnight, was the ninth officer commissioned in the new Marine Corps in July 1798. In 1802, nine months after Priscilla was born, and while commanding the Marines on board the USS Constellation near Italy, Captain McKnight was killed in a duel with Naval Lieutenant Richard H.L. Lawson at Livorno, where he was buried. McKnight's wife was Anne Pine Decatur, sister of Stephen Decatur, Jr., under whom Twiggs had earlier served. Stephen Decatur, who had no children of his own, adopted McKnight's daughters to raise as his own. By the time Levi and Priscilla married, Decatur himself had been killed in a duel with Commodore James Barron in March 1820 at Washington, D.C. Twenty-six years later, Decatur's body was brought to Philadelphia and buried near his parents at St. Peter's Churchyard at Third and Pine. Levi and Priscilla had three daughters, including Anna McKnight Twiggs, born in 1823, and a son, George Decatur Twiggs, born in 1828. Levi Twiggs reached the rank of captain in February 1830. He was senior company commander in 1836, the year Laurel Hill Cemetery was founded, when the Marines' fourth commandant, Major Archibald Henderson, offered the services of the Corps to President Andrew Jackson to fight the Indians in East Florida. Captain Twiggs led Company A of the Marine Battalion and fought during the Second Seminole War, which led to most of the Seminoles in Florida being killed. He returned to command of the Marine Barracks in Philadelphia, now as a major, until the Mexican War was declared in 1846. Levi was ordered to duty with a field battalion that sailed from Fort Hamilton, New York in June 1847. Levi had given his son George Decatur Twiggs permission to join the Army, and on 12 August 1847, while serving as an artillery lieutenant, George was killed at the Battle of Puente Nacional, Veracruz, New Mexico. Levi and the Marines, under the command of General Winfield Scott, had maneuvered to the strategically located Chapultepec Castle just outside Mexico City on 11 September. Chapultepec was built not as a fortress, but as a luxury residence. It was, however, well situated on a 200-foot-tall hill. Scott held a council with his generals and engineers and discussed attacking the castle, then the home of the Mexican Military Academy from the west. Levi's older brother, Major General David Emanuel Twiggs, agreed. Holding out for an attack from the south was Captain Robert E. Lee. The young lieutenant, PGT Beauregard, gave a speech which persuaded General Franklin Pierce to change his vote in favor of the western attack. The two storming parties of about 250 men were to include 40 Marines, including the 54-year-old Twiggs. 
After a day-long artillery attack on the 12th, the infantry charge began at 8 a.m. on 13 September. At the command, Twiggs stood and ran across the causeway to the castle, exclaiming to a junior officer when he arrived, My God, I am tired. He began to question the position of his troops when he suddenly pitched forward. He had been shot through the heart by a musketeer on the walls of Chapultepec. The younger officer dragged him to the side and gently placed the major's head on a rock, covered his face with his hat, crossed his hands on his chest. At the time he died, Major Levi Twiggs had not yet received word about the death of his only son, 19-year-old Lieutenant George Decatur Twiggs, 32 days earlier. Twiggs' remains were brought back to Philadelphia in February 1848 and interred in Section C, Lot 20, under a brownstone monument donated by citizens of Philadelphia. It is one of the most distinguished monuments in Laurel Hill Cemetery. Chapultepec Castle and the city of Mexico fell in the assaults that followed. The exploits of the Marines gained them wide acclaim and became the opening line to the Marine hymn from the halls of Montezuma. Music was taken from Jacques Offenbach's 1867 opera Genevieve de Brabant. While the lyrics are said to date from the 19th century, no pre-20th century text is known and their author is also unknown. And strictly speaking, the lyrics are incorrect. The building stormed by the Marines had been erected by the Spanish rulers of Mexico more than two centuries after the Aztec Emperor Montezuma was overthrown. But it does sound better than from the halls of the viceroys of New Spain. Marine Corps tradition also maintains that the red stripe worn on the trousers of officers and non-commissioned officers, commonly known as the blood stripe, commemorates the high number of Marine NCOs and officers killed in this battle. But in fact, the red stripe on the pants had been borrowed from the Army and worn since 1840, and only seven Marines were killed at Chapultepec. At the time of his death, Levi Twiggs was ranked in seniority just ahead of John Harris, who succeeded Archibald Henderson as Commandant of the Corps in 1859. Had Twiggs lived, he might have gotten the top job in place of Harris. I will talk more about the ranks in the Marine Corps, why a man with 36 years of honorable service was only a major, in the next part of today's podcast when I talk about Jacob Zylan. But another question must be addressed. Twiggs, although buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery, was a son of the South. His father was the savior of Georgia and a slave owner. Would Levi have followed in the steps of his older brother, Major General David Emanuel Twiggs, who had earned the nickname Bengal Tiger for his ferocity in battle? David had faithfully served the U.S. Army through the War of 1812, the Second Seminole War, and the Mexican-American War. In 1828, David established Fort Winnebago between the Fox and Wisconsin Rivers in Wisconsin, which was a base of operations for the Black Hawk Wars. In 1848, David Twiggs was appointed Brevet Major General and Commander of the U.S. Army's Department of Texas. 
When the Civil War broke out in 1861, he was one of only four general officers in the Union Army and had served in uniform for 50 years. But as states started to secede from the Union, David Twiggs met with a trio of Confederate commissioners and surrendered his entire command, including the federal arsenal at the Alamo and all other federal installations, property, and soldiers in Texas to the Confederacy. 20 military installations, 44 cannons, 400 pistols, 1,900 muskets, 500 wagons, and 950 horses. Needless to say, he was dismissed from the U.S. Army on the 1st of March, 1861, for, quote, treachery to the flag of his country, end quote. He accepted a commission as a major general from the Confederate government on the 22nd of May, but realized that his poor health would prevent him from serving. So he resigned his commission at age 71. He died in July 1862, and except for Civil War buffs, is little remembered today as one of the great traitors in U.S. history. He is buried with other family members at the Twiggs Cemetery in Augusta, Georgia. Major Levi Twiggs' name was held in Marine Corps memory by having two ships of the United States Navy with the name USS Twiggs. The first, a Wicks-class destroyer, was launched in 1918 and transferred to the United Kingdom in 1940. She was scrapped in 1951 after having spent six years in the Soviet Navy. The second USS Twiggs was a Fletcher-class destroyer launched in 1943, but sunk during the Battle of Okinawa in 1945 by a Japanese kamikaze pilot with a loss of 152 lives. In the archives of the cemetery is a letter signed by the Admiral of the Navy, Chester Nimitz, announcing the decision to build another ship with Twiggs' name on it. One of Levi's and Priscilla's daughters is buried at the family plot. Born in 1823, Anna McKnight Twiggs married another military man, Colonel Francis Wincoop, commander of the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment in the Mexican-American War, which he survived. However, while hunting near Tamaqua, Pennsylvania in December 1857, he was accidentally shot by one of his servants and died from the wound within 30 minutes. He is buried in Pottsville. Anna McKnight Twiggs thus lost her first husband, her younger brother, her father, her maternal grandfather, and an uncle to gunshot wounds. She married again in 1871, and believe it or not, it was to another military man. She was 48 years old. He was 14 years her junior. His name was the Reverend Charles Reuben Hale. Charles was born in Lewistown, Pennsylvania in 1837. He graduated in 1858 from the University of Pennsylvania, where he displayed talent as a linguist and a translator. He was appointed by the Philomathian Society to a committee of three to translate the Rosetta Stone. He was ordained to the Episcopalian priesthood in 1861. After serving at churches in Germantown and Lower Dublin, he spent from 1863 to 1870 as a chaplain in the U.S. Navy, 
teaching mathematics at the Naval Academy for more than a year. For safety reasons during the war, the Academy had been moved from Annapolis to Newport, Rhode Island. In 1871, the year he married Anna, he visited Russia and started learning the Russian language. He also served in Baltimore and in Davenport, Iowa, and gave occasional lectures to Neshota House in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where 20 years later, Father Sigourney Fay would have his crisis of faith and convert to Catholicism. You can hear about Fay in podcast number 19. Along the way, Hale earned two honorary doctorates, a DD in 1876 and an LLD in 1889. In 1884, Anna died at age 61. They had no children, and Charles never remarried. By 1886, Reverend Hale was comfortable reading a dozen languages while conversant in several of them. He used his language and research skills to publish scholarly works on the Anglican, Old Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox churches. In 1892, Hale received Episcopal consecration in the Davenport Cathedral to be assistant coadjutor to the Bishop of Springfield, Illinois, with the title Bishop of Cairo. Reverend Charles Reuben Hale died on Christmas Day, 1900. He was 63. In his last will and testament, he left an endowment of $50,000 to Western Theological Seminary of Evanston, Illinois, to establish a series of Hale lectures on subjects such as liturgies and Eastern churches. They are still delivered. Now it's at Bexley Hall Seabury Western Theological Seminary Federation. Hale also left his library of 400 books to the seminary. He was buried near his wife, Anna, mother-in-law Priscilla, and father-in-law Levi and brother-in-law George, whom he had never met. Jacob Zylan Jr. was born on 16 July 1806 in Philadelphia. His father, Jacob Sr., had arrived in Philadelphia in 1798 and married Maria Fritzinger in 1802. From 1799 to 1819, Jacob Sr. operated the tavern, the Sign of Philadelphia, on Chestnut Street between 4th and 5th Street, about a block from Independence Hall. It was a popular meeting place for politicians and militiamen. After Jacob Sr. sold the tavern in 1819, Governor William Findlay appointed him as the official state translator of German. By the 1820s, the Zyland family lived near 6th and Sansom Street. Jacob Zyland Jr. attended the U.S. Military Academy from 1822 to 1825, but left prior to his graduation due to poor grades in math and chemistry. This was not long after the Academy had achieved some order under the leadership of Colonel Sylvanus Thayer, who had been appointed superintendent in 1817 by President James Monroe. Prior to Thayer's stewardship, cadets ranged in age from 10 to 37 years and attended classes for anywhere from six months to six years. Thayer established the standard four-year curriculum with four class levels. By 1830, the Xylem family lived at 4th and Walnut. In October of 1831, Jacob Jr. was commissioned into the U.S. Marine Corps as a second lieutenant. The next year, his father died. In 
the Marine Corps was still finding its role in its service to the United States at that time. After the Corps was reestablished in March 1794, their role was solely as guards for individual ships. The only officer rank allowed was that of lieutenant, one per ship. In July 1797, another act of Congress allowed for two Marine lieutenants on 44-gun frigates and one on the 36-gun frigates. Some of those were still being completed. Finally, in July 1798, another Congressional Act created the Navy Department and organized the Marines as a Corps. This provided for the ranks of Major, Captain, and First and Second Lieutenants. But less than two years later, in early 1800, an act established the rank of Lieutenant Colonel for the Commandant, and since the Corps' role was not expanded beyond ship's guard or barracks detachment, the role of Major was abolished. It was restored temporarily in 1809 by Thomas Jefferson. Then there came the Peace Establishment Act of March 1817, following the War of 1812. It again abolished the role of Major. It determined that the Marine Corps would consist of one Lieutenant Colonel Commandant, nine Captains, 24 First Lieutenants, and 16 Second Lieutenants. The rank of Major stayed vacant in the Marine Corps for another 17 years, until Congress authorized four Majors in June 1834, including Levi Twiggs, along with one Colonel Commandant and one Lieutenant Colonel. The rank of Colonel was the highest in the Marine Corps through the Civil War. This explains why Levi Twiggs, a loyal and true Marine from 1813 to his death in 1847, never rose above the rank of Major despite his 34 years of service. Jacob Zeiland's first station was shore duty in the Philadelphia Naval Yard and Virginia Naval Yard. He was assigned to the USS Erie in 1832. In 1836, he returned to shore duty, this time at yards in Massachusetts and New York, before being assigned to another boat, the USS Columbus, in 1842. Zeiland patrolled Brazil and along the coast of South America, before moving to the USS Congress, which was under the command of Commodore Robert F. Stockton in 1846. This was to support the Mexican-American War. He participated at the conquest of California, the action at San Gabriel River, the siege of Los Angeles, and the Battle of La Mesa. He was briefly assigned as Commandant of San Diego before he returned to Mexico for the capture of the Guaymas and Mazatlan. Zeitlin's next command oversaw the 150-strong Marine force assigned to Commodore Matthew C. Perry's expedition to open Japan to the west. Perry's fleet anchored in Tokyo Bay and on July 14, 1853, landed on the bay's western shore near Yokohama. Zeiland was assigned to the USS Mississippi, a paddle frigate which had been built at the Philadelphia Naval Yard in 1841. The Mississippi was equipped with two 10-inch Pixans guns and eight 8-inch guns. Perry wanted to impress the Japanese with a show of drill and precision, and Zeiland assembled his Marines to do just that. 
led by Xylem, they accompanied Perry ashore and stood in impeccable uniforms and ranks behind Perry as the Commodore delivered a message for the Japanese government. The appearance and discipline of Perry, Xylem, and the Marines had the desired effect among the Japanese. They also became the subjects of many paintings and drawings. Upon returning from the Far East, Xylem served ashore duty at Norfolk, Washington, and Wabash until the beginning of the Civil War. In July 1861, Congress approved augmenting officer strength in the Corps by permitting another colonel besides the Commandant and two lieutenant colonels, as well as more captains and lieutenants. Major Zylan initially commanded the Marine Barracks of Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. until July 1861, when he was second in command of a battalion under Marine Major John G. Reynolds, no relation to John Fulton Reynolds, who was killed the first day of Gettysburg and was buried in Lancaster. Reynolds and Zylan would be leading the Union Marine Forces during the Battle of Bull Run under the command of Union Army Brigadier General Irvin McDowell. The battalion trooped out from the Washington Naval Yard with four companies of 320 privates, 12 officers, 17 non-commissioned officers, two drummers, and two fifers. Reynolds had 35 years of service, Zylan had 30 years. Of the remainder, only three other officers, nine NCOs, and two musicians could be considered veterans. Many of the 320 privates had joined the Marine Corps less than a week before the battle. The Marines were attached to Colonel Andrew Porter's brigade. Porter recognized their inexperience and assigned them to support a battery from the 5th U.S. Artillery. The support troops were swamped by Confederate forces under an equally inexperienced Brigadier General, PGT Beauregard, and Major Zylan was slightly wounded in the arm. As any Civil War buff knows, the First Battle of Bull Run, or First Manassas, ended with a surprising Confederate victory and a humiliating Union flight back to Washington. Most of the Marines made it back. His battalion had lost nine Marines killed, 19 wounded, and six missing. Zylan recovered from his wound and later in the war commanded the Marines during joint action with the Navy's South Atlantic Blockading Squadron against Charleston, South Carolina under Admiral John Dahlgren, whom I have discussed in a prior podcast. Dahlgren planned for Zylan's Marines to make a landing and support the Army soldiers already on shore, but Zylan surprisingly objected. He claimed his force was, quote, incompetent to the duty assigned it. Sufficient sacrifice of life has already been made during this war in unsuccessful storming parties to make me anxious at least to remove responsibility from myself. End quote. Zylan also complained that many of his Marines were raw recruits and it was too hot to train them. No duty which they could be called upon to perform requires such perfect discipline and drill as landing under fire. A furious Dahlgren canceled the Marine landing and recorded in his diary, quote, The commander of Marines reports against risking his men in attacking enemy works. What are Marines for? End quote. 
On the 1st of May, 1864, Colonel John Harris, 6th Commandant of the Corps, died at age 70. Major John G. Reynolds, Zylan's senior officer at Bull Run, who had been promoted to lieutenant colonel, was the logical replacement, but he had run afoul of Harris along the way. He was actually court-martialed on a charge of being drunk on duty. Thus, Major Jacob Zylan of Philadelphia, age 57, was promoted directly to colonel and appointed colonel commandant of the Marine Corps. He served in that role for more than 12 years. And at long last, on the 2nd of March, 1867, the Marine Corps obtained its first regular commissioned brigadier general when Commandant Colonel Jacob Zylan was elevated to that rank by law. His salary was an estimated $5,000 a year. A law passed in 1874 tried to reverse this in the future, stating that each succeeding commandant would have the rank and pay of a colonel. But on the 3rd of March, 1899, the post of Marine Commandant was raised by a statute permanently to that of Brigadier General. A year after becoming the Marine Corps' first general, Zylan appointed a board to design a universal emblem for the service. The board studied several options, and inspired by the Royal Marines' crest, the members recommended a globe superimposed on a fouled anchor topped with an eagle. Zylan approved it as the service's new logo, which it has used ever since. General Zylan was a member of the Pennsylvania Commandery of the Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States, a military society of officers who served in the Union Armed Forces. Zylan retired from the Marine Corps on 1 November 1876 after serving over 45 years as a Marine Corps officer. When considering his time at West Point, he served over 49 years in uniform. Zylan had married Virginia Freeman on October 22, 1845. Together they had one son, William Freeman Zylan, and two daughters, Margaret Freeman Very, wife of Navy Lieutenant Edward Wilson Very, inventor, author, and entrepreneur, who's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and Anne V. Stockton, wife of Robert Field Stockton, son of New Jersey Senator John P. Stockton. Jacob's son, William Freeman Zylan, was also a Marine who achieved the rank of First Lieutenant. While stationed at Norfolk in 1880, he went on an excursion to Ocean View, Virginia on June 4th with many friends, men and women. At the end of the day's fun, he decided to ride his horse the eight miles back to Norfolk while his friends took the train. About halfway between the two points, there was a toll gate at a short plank bridge. The wife of the keeper of the toll gate heard a rapid clatter of horses' hoofs coming down the turnpike and thought there was a runaway coming. So she instructed her son to close the gate. The gates were double, and the boy had but half closed one of them when Lieutenant Zylan came around a turn in the road riding fast, apparently spurring on his mount and in control. The woman shouted to her son to reopen the gate, but the boy could not get the gate open quickly enough and the horse struck it at a high speed. The gate was smashed to pieces and Zylan was thrown head over heels and struck the ground head first. 
He apparently died instantly. He was 29 years old. His body was brought to Philadelphia and interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. His father, struck with paralysis about a month earlier, was unable to attend the services. On 18 November 1880, Jacob Zylan died in Washington, D.C. and was buried in the south part of Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 18. Two ships in the United States Navy have been named USS Zylan in his honor. The first, a Clemson-class destroyer in 1920, and the second, a troop transport in 1941 that was decommissioned in 1946. He is also the namesake for Zylan Road on Marine Corps Base Quantico in Virginia and for Zylan Street on Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton in California. The next time you're in Center City, Philadelphia, near City Hall, do yourself a favor. Head to 13th Street, just across from Wanamaker's, uh, excuse me, Macy's, and walk south past St. John the Evangelist Roman Catholic Church. Cross Clover Street. Now look up at the bay window that protrudes from the second floor of what is now Old Nelson Food. I actually suggest you cross the street to appreciate it fully. You will see a black sign made from pressed tin that has been there for 130 years. The section protruding from the bay window says, Ladies and Children's Hairdressing. This was the home of Richard Binder's five-story barber shop and hair parlor. Now look closely under the windows between the first and second floor across the front of the building. There are more pressed tin signs. One of them says, Binders, Wig and Toupee Maker. Another says, Haircutting and Singeing. A third says simply, Cigars. What in the world does this have to do with the Marine Corps? I hear you say, plenty. Richard Binder was born Richard Beagle in Württemberg, Germany in 1839. He immigrated to the United States in 1854, landing in New York before eventually relocating to Philadelphia, where he applied for citizenship in 1860. Binder lived in Kensington with the family of Francis Schmidt, a fellow German immigrant, and both men worked as barbers. But when the Civil War broke out less than a year later, Binder enlisted in the Marine Corps on 11 July 1861 at age 21. He eventually rose to the rank of sergeant, serving on a ship that sank during the Battle of Port Royal in November 1861. For the next three years, he was involved in various naval battles, and from 1864 to 1865, he was assigned to the USS Ticonderoga, a 237-foot screw sloop of war armed with a 150-pound Parrot rifle, a 50-pound Dahlgren's rifle, six 9-inch Dahlgren smoothbores, and some smaller arms. As I said, I've talked about Admiral Dahlgren before, his invention, the Dahlgren rifle. That was in podcast number 10, All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, Friends of Abraham Lincoln. During the first and second battles of Fort Fisher in 1864 and 1865, Binder's actions found him being awarded the Medal of Honor. Now, before I tell you what he did to earn this, let me spend a few minutes talking about the Medal of Honor. Our military's first medal was the Badge for Military Merit. 
It was established by General George Washington during the American Revolution, but it was only presented three times. During the Civil War, the Medal of Honor was established and presented nearly 3,000 times before World War I. It is often incorrectly called the Congressional Medal of Honor. It is simply Medal of Honor, and the men who have received it prefer to be called recipients, not winners. You don't win the Medal of Honor. It's not a sporting contest. It is the only United States military award worn from a ribbon hung around the neck and the only award presented, quote, by the president in the name of the Congress, end quote. During the Civil War, the Medal of Honor was the only award available for recognizing a significant act of heroism while serving the United States military. The first Medal of Honor ever presented was awarded by Secretary of War Edwin Stanton on March 25, 1863, to 19-year-old Ohio Army Private Jacob Parrott, a member of Andrews Raiders, immortalized in the movie The Great Locomotive Chase. But in some cases, it was awarded frivolously. And in 1917, a review was made of Medal of Honor recipients with the revocation of 911 that were deemed to have been awarded without proper merit. At the same time, in 1917, a series of lesser awards in descending orders of precedence were established in the military pyramid of honor. Distinguished Service Cross, Distinguished Flying Cross, Silver Star, Bronze Star, etc., depending on which branch of service and what the degree of service was. These were to recognize deeds of lesser heroism than what was required for the Medal of Honor, as well as to honor distinguished service and or achievement that was laudable, but not necessarily heroic. Only one woman, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, during the Civil War, ever received the Medal of Honor. It was rescinded during the 1917 purge, but then reinstated in 1977. Dr. Walker is also one of only eight civilians to be honored. Theodore Roosevelt is the only president to receive the Medal of Honor, but he received it posthumously in 2001, 103 years after his actions, which earned it on San Juan Hill. Sons of two presidents have received medals of honor, Webb Cook Hayes in the Philippine insurrection, and Theodore Roosevelt Jr. in World War II. The youngest person ever to receive the Medal of Honor was probably William Willie Johnston, who earned the medal during the Civil War just prior to his 12th birthday. The oldest recipient was probably General Douglas MacArthur, who was 62 years old when he earned the medal. World War II hero Jack Lucas became the youngest man in this century to receive the award when he threw his body over two grenades at Iwo Jima just five days after his 17th birthday. At the time of his heroism, he had already been in the Marine Corps for three years. Back to Richard Binder. This is his official Medal of Honor citation. Quote, On board the USS Ticonderoga during the attacks on Fort Fisher, 24 and December 25, 1864, and 13 to January 15, 1865. Despite heavy return fire by the enemy and the explosion of the 100-pounder Parrot rifle, which killed eight men and wounded 12 more, Sergeant Binder, as captain of a gun, performed his duties with skill and courage during the first two days of battle. 
as his ship again took position on the 13th. He remained steadfast as the Ticonderoga maintained a well-placed fire upon the batteries on shore and thereafter as she materially lessened the power of guns on the mound which had been turned upon our assaulting columns. During this action, the flag was planted on one of the strongest fortifications possessed by the rebels. End quote. Binder actually wrote of his own experience, and he described some of his duties later. Quote, After the storming parties had formed in line, volunteers were called for to go to the front and act as sharpshooters. The advanced position that was to be occupied was extremely dangerous, owing to the nearness of the enemy and the continuous rain of shot and shell that swept over it. Also to the unpleasant fact that the whole ground immediately in front of the fort was mined. Volunteers were not plentiful. Indeed, for a time, not a single one offered his services for the undertaking. Then Lieutenant Williams volunteered the whole guard, of which I was sergeant, as sharpshooters. We fixed our accoutrement and started for our position. Lieutenant Williams, Sergeant Isaac N. Fry, and I in the lead. We crawled the entire distance to our posts, and when we got there, we were compelled to stay from 1 o'clock until dark, amid the bursting of shells and whizzing hail of bullets. During that time, no one would venture to go to the rear, nor did anyone from behind come out to us. To show your hat above that cover meant almost instantly to have it knocked off by a bullet. As it began to get dark, we left our posts and returned to the rear. Lieutenant Williams and I were the last to leave our position in the front. End quote. Binder and seven other men involved in his assault were awarded the Medal of Honor. After his honorable discharge from the Army in 1865 and his marriage in 1868 to Friederica, who was also from Württemberg and immigrated to the United States in 1860, Binder returned to his pre-war work cutting hair. By the late 19th century, a barber's job had shifted away from its earlier inclusion of minor surgery, bloodletting, cupping, and leeching. Hairdressing had recently shifted from a home service to a formal profession with commercial locations, and Binder's business successfully reflected the increasing professionalization of the industry. An average barber shop was about 10 by 12 feet. It cost about $20 to equip. A haircut cost five or ten cents. A shave was three cents. By 1865, Binder had a shop at 615 Chestnut Street, currently the site of La Scala Restaurant. In 1872, he opened a second location at the Bingham House Hotel at 11th and Market Streets. That was later the site of the Earl Theater. The shop was to cater to the hotel's guests. Ten years later, in 1887, he opened a third location at 29 South East Street, but in the same year, he commissioned his five-story building at 35 South 13th Street. He opened it for business a year later. On 13 February 1888, Richard Binder placed an ad in the Times Philadelphia inviting gentlemen, ladies, and children to visit his new, quote, hairdressing parlors and the palatial bathrooms attached, end quote, highlighting its location across the street from Wanamaker's. The newspaper ran an article the next day to mark the opening of the, quote, elaborate tonsorial establishment that it called the handsomest barbershop ever fitted up in this city. The building included a barbershop at the first floor, a second floor salon for women and children, 
had lodging room for bachelors and widowers on the upper floors. Its glass chandeliers and candelabra, tiled floor, glazed brick walls, heavy French plate beveled mirrors, spiral staircase, and velvet carpets were all eagerly announced as, quote, a marvel of magnificence, end quote. In 1892, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported how Binder had rescued a fellow veteran from the notorious Blockley Alms House in West Philadelphia, where he had gone three years earlier after a stroke. Binder called the matter up before the veteran Marine Battalion and his brother-in-arms, who had been partially paralyzed by the stroke, obtained a sufficient pension to live independently. Blockley Alms House later became Philadelphia General Hospital. By 1893, Richard Binder and company had grown to 55 employees, including 15 women, all of them self-taught. Because in Chicago that year, A.B. Moeller established the first school for barbers. It was easy to follow Binder's career through newspaper articles. For instance, in 1896, he was hailed as, quote, an uncompromising and dauntless foe of the tipping practice in America. He has embellished the walls of his barber shops with placards to the effect that customers are urged to desist from the pernicious habit of tipping the tonsorial artists, and that employees caught in the act of accepting tips will be discharged, end quote. And in 1900, he gave all the proceeds that his three establishments earned on Christmas Eve, a traditionally busy day, to his employees, a handsome sum of more than $1,219. Binder also got into the business of concocting hair tonics and ointments that he promoted nationally. His biggest seller was Phytalia, a product made of, quote, beneficial vegetable principles, end quote, that he claimed could positively cure dandruff and strengthen the hair by making vigorous the circulation of the blood in the scalp. All this with just the, quote, faintest, least obtrusive scent. It apparently smelled slightly of oranges. Wanamaker's department store made sure to mention its sale of Phytalia in its own advertisements. In 1911, however, John Armour of Clayton, New Jersey, fired a lawsuit for $100,000 against Wanamaker's. His wife, Mrs. Mira J. Armour, was a user of Phytalia, but she found it difficult to remove the glass stopper from a bottle. So she poured hot water on it to assist her. The bottle exploded and the contents ignited and spread over the floor and her clothing. Mrs. Armour died of her severe burns a few hours later and Mr. Armour himself was severely burned while attempting to extinguish his wife's flaming clothing. Phytalia was 60% alcohol and highly flammable. I could not find whether John Armour won his case. It may have been settled out of court. Binder retained his business through the first decade of the 20th century, expanding his hair business from tonsorials to tonics and toupees. Richard Binder died in 1912. He's buried with Frederica in West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Norriton section, lot 48. He's one of nine Medal of Honor recipients interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. One obituary mentions his hobby of collecting canes. He owned more than 600, one of which had been used by Abraham Lincoln. His epitaph commemorates his military service and his Medal of Honor. 
but you'll have to go to the building with the tin signs on South 13th Street to get an idea of how successful he was in the remainder of his life. His legacy remains there in Center City. Well, the decision has been made. The Cemetery Museum at the Gatehouse of Laurel Hill Cemetery will not reopen this calendar year. You can still honor the centenary of the 19th Amendment with us virtually, though. The exhibit is called Their Legacies, the Women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. It celebrates achievements of 16 women buried in Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. The exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. I've talked about several of these women in prior podcasts. Go to thelaurelhillcemetery.org. Click on the Visit drop-down menu. Scroll down to Online Exhibit. You can get your own PDF copy of the exhibit. It's free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Next time, in the December edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, we will look at the story of Philadelphia as a textile center in the 19th century. Now, many people think of Massachusetts as the hotbed of textile manufacturing. Philadelphia had more factories, and it employed more people. I'm going to tell you about Joseph Ripka, a Silesian immigrant who traded his workers as slaves, and he made a fortune until he didn't. Seville Schofield, whose massive mill can still be seen along the Maniunk towpath. The Winpenny family, which has a statue of a woman on a pedestal at its gravesite. It's frequently mistaken for an angel. And Thomas Drake, whose daughter Charlotte was rescued from the RMS Titanic, but in a fit of pique had the family's entire mausoleum moved from Laurel Hill Cemetery to West Laurel Hill Cemetery. That is next month on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October, but now we are getting into November, and the hours are changing to 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. They will stay that way through April. We welcome everyone. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheeled variety. And we're open for tours again. If you're willing to wear a nose and mouth cover and stay six feet apart from everyone who is not a family member, please take one of our tours. Check out some of the upcoming tours. If you're still not ready to show up in person, we're also doing some virtual tours. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. And there's something else to satisfy your curiosity. laurelhillcemetery.blog. 
Here you can read about even more interesting people. If you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and our activities. And once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries. You'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear my references for this show. The Marine Corps is proud of its history and avid about sharing it. I found plenty of material online about Levi Twiggs from Marine History Sites and several articles about the Mexican-American War. Contemporary newspaper articles about his traitor brother David were also plentiful. I expected nothing about the son-in-law, Charles Hale, but was delighted to find an article by J. Robert Wright and Edward Kasinek called Charles Hale and the Russian Church, the Biography of Inokentii in Anglican and Episcopal History, Volume 71, Number 1, March 2002, pages 26 to 41. Jacob Zylan is also proudly represented on marine history sites, but I got extra information from a curious source. The 4 November 1943 edition of the Taliqua, Oklahoma Citizen, an article by Staff Sergeant Theus J. McQueen, was entitled Leaders of the Marines, 1775 to 1943, and had a really nice write-up on Zylan. Bob McNulty was the guy who supplied information on Jacob Zylan's family when I had problems. Check out the wonderful research he does on his Facebook page, Philadelphia Stories. Richard Binder's military history is easily researched online because other people have done the work for me. For his life as a businessman in Philadelphia, I got a huge amount of information from Hidden City, Philadelphia. It's dated 2 April 2014. The article is by Molly Lester called Ticonderoga to Toupees, Binders Building on 13th Street. Also from a website called My Time Machine, Buildings, Places, People, and Things dated 21 October 2012, There was an article called Before There Were Binders Full of Women by Sabra Smith. And there was another article by Ms. Smith entitled Mr. Binder Goes to War. That's from 11 July 2011. Both of those are available online. Again, our Hidden City Philadelphia and My Time Machine, Buildings, Places, People, and Things. Finally, I found an invaluable reference called United States Marine Corps Ranks and Grades, 1775-1969. It's a Marine Corps historical reference pamphlet, revised edition dated 1970. I was having a hard time finding out. I was I was confused about the, the difficulty with ranks in the Marine Corps through the 19th century, and this cleared it up for me perfectly. I'm Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today, and until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.